0: All right, kindergarten through second grade is dismissed. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Second uh, Peter chapter 1, we'll be in verses 5 through 15 this morning. And so I uh, just want to catch us up uh, on a couple things. We don't want to forget how it is that Peter referred to his audience in First Peter. So uh, this is not rhetorical. Josh has already kind of got you guys warmed up just a little bit. Um, And so, uh, what's the phrase that Peter uses to describe them? What are they? Elect exiles. Now, why is that? What relationship is first being uh, emphasized in, in that phrase? Elect, which means that their relationship with God is the most important thing. It really is. It is the most defining thing about them. And in that phrase, elect, as as Josh rightly told you all, our faith doesn't rise from us. It doesn't come from us. It's not something that you muster. It's not something that you can look inward and find. It is something that you can cultivate. We're going to hear that from Peter this morning, Uh, but, but it doesn't originate with you. It originates with God. It is God who first did what with us? Judged us, right? No. What did God do first with us? He first loved us. Uh, and he loved us so much that the judgment for us as elect falls fully and thoroughly up, upon... I'm not having a stroke, am I? The lights are doing something weird. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure. It's been a long week. Uh, and so, uh, so the fact that he loves us first and the judgment falls fully and thoroughly upon Christ means that we are set free. And that we are set free to worship and, and live and bear the image of God for the life of the world. We have a purpose, and that's what Peter's been trying to communicate, is you're here for a reason. The, the fact that you didn't immediately, uh, to use some phraseology, get raptured up into heaven when you were saved, means that you've been left here for some purpose. And God, in great glory, our Abba Father says, join me in this redemptive work that I am doing in this world which many of you are doing and you are discovering just how hard it is, isn't it? To love broken people who've been hurt by other people who, who just are wrestling with all kinds of stuff. Uh, I don't know that there's a week that we come in here that there isn't someone who's wrestling with something of great significance. And God says, but first remember who you are, you are mine. And then he actually uses a, a, a reference to our relationship to the world. Uh, what's, what's that phrase? What does he call us? We're exiles. Now, that means we don't have to care about the world, does it? That means the world can go and burn for all we care, right? Is that what he says? No, not at all. Please hear me. That is antithetical to the truth of the gospel because remember, Jesus comes into that world, takes on the flesh of a man, goes through all that humanity must endure. Temptation, sorrow, growth, obedience, fear, longing, hunger, thirst so that he can be our advocate, so that he can make intercession, which is what we saw in our assurance of pardon, is that he was making intercession for Peter. Did you notice what he said? So beautiful, he says. And think about this, that Jesus would pray for him. He says, I'm praying for you that your faith will hold. Now, if he he didn't say anything else, that would be a, a little bit, sounds like that's on Peter, but what does he say next? He says, and when you return. What did he just guarantee him? You will come back. I will see to it. You will. And when you do, strengthen the brothers because they're going to go through something very similar to what you're going through. Take heart. Use your suffering. Remember this. Peter says, offer up your broken cup so many times in that first letter. And here in the second letter, he's addressing something very specific, which is how false teachers are going to come in and try to destroy them. And so... He begins this letter, as Robbie shared with us last week so beautifully, that he begins with the truth of the gospel. The gospel of Christ is that firm foundation. It is That's why we sang that song, to remind us of what our one foundation is. It is Christ and Christ alone. And the good news is something that we need to make sure that we come back to often and that we understand the fullness of it. I love how Paul prays uh, for us as people. He says, I'm praying that the Spirit would help you to understand its breadth and its width and its height and its depth, which he then tells us in Romans is not measured. It can't be measured. It's even greater than that, but he does pray that we would get into the depths of it. And so Peter is saying something very similar to us as he begins this letter. He's saying, make sure that you remember the indicative. Now, for some of you who haven't been with us, you're like, wait, I didn't, I didn't come here for an English lesson. I don't know what the indicative is. Well, the indicative is just that is the firm foundation. That is, that is everything that we are called to do in obedience, which we refer to as the imperatives, that, that it must rise from God having loved us first. Too many times we are wearing ourselves absolutely out trying to do in, in our own strength what cannot be done. And we don't come back again to the truth of the gospel. We don't come back again to all the contours and geography of grace. So the first question that I have for us this morning is, what's your definition of the gospel of Christ? And see, I think sometimes we don't keep coming back to that and making sure that we have the fullness thereof. And so for us here at Christ Community, if you've been through our membership, you know they're within the manual... Somewhere about page 137. No, it's, not, it's not true. It's not quite that long. Uh, but, but there is this description of the gospel because I think it's important because a lot of times I think what we do is actually have a gospel that's okay news instead of the true fullness of the good news. So the fullness of the gospel for us, the freight of that, whenever we use that term so you know what we're talking about is that, is that Christ came and that he lived the perfect life that he he died a satisfactory death, meaning that the fullness of God's wrath was satisfied in him on our behalf. The fullness of our shame and guilt is taken away. We'll see that in the table later this morning. And a lot of times that's where people stop, right? The, 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 the short form of the gospel is Jesus saves sinners. That's not, a ba- that's not terrible. It just isn't full enough. It's not, it's not the fullness of what God intends. And so... So after he dies, what happens next? He rises from the grave, and that gets applied to us. You do know that you are, as a Christian, involved in and participating in the resurrection right now. You may say, well, I, I kind of feel walking dead. I've got to be honest with you. I don't, I'm not feeling it. Uh, Georgia looked terrible yesterday. I can't get my head around it. The whole season's lost. I, just don't, I don't even know where to go from here. Tennessee won, so everybody's like, okay, yeah, this is what we've been looking for, signature win. You know, you, you feel resurrected. You got your shoes on, you're ready. <laughs> I'm a North Carolina fan. It's been bad for a long time. I, I've, suffering is what we do. And so, uh, so, so we don't often feel like we're participating in the resurrection, but you are. And that's important for you to remember that that is an unfolding, ongoing, progressive process that will have its end. And while we're in the midst of the between the now and the not yet, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, and he's doing for us what he did for Peter. Right now, he's interceding for us. He's praying that every single one of our faiths would hold, that we would hear the beauty once again of the truth of the gospel, that that which Peter so desired to make sure that his death would not take away, which is the message of the truth of the gospel, Jesus is interceding for us. And if that weren't plenty, he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to make all things new. At long last, at long last, all pain and suffering will be taken away. Every tear will be wiped away. All that haunts us, all that gives us sorrow and lament and confuses us and grants us despair and causes us to wonder if God is really there will long be gone. Because we will behold in fullness at long last as resurrected, glorified ones. Now that—that's the gospel. Now you may say, "What? I I mean, on elevator ride, that's hard to share all that." Well, that's because the gospel is a relational issue. It's not something you're supposed to just spring on people. uh, And and don't hear me wrongly here. Some people are incredibly gifted at this, but it's not something that's intended for you to throw at someone. And then hope it sticks and walk away. It's something you're supposed to walk with people as Christ walked with you. It's to be a relational exchange, not a commodity. And so it's critical that when we hear the word gospel, we get all of that. And that we are meditating on how different aspects of that are important in various places in our lives. For instance, when you're battling shame and guilt, which part of the gospel is most beautiful to you? It should be the crucifixion of Christ, as, as odd as that seems to sound to our ears. For those of you who are struggling in obedience, it should be the resurrection of Christ that emboldens you. His, the fact that he's interceding for you, praying for you, should mean something. That should, that should give you great hope. That should give you joy and peace. But too often, I think, we don't turn there first. We are so, so crazy pragmatic. I am numbered among you. We turn to ourselves first, and only when we finally hit kind of that despair point do we turn to, to God to fix all that, as if he hadn't already fixed it. And so, as we step into this, let's remember, because now we're going to be, I mean, and for those of you, you feel like Peter's been telling us lots of stuff to do, right? If you've been paying attention, it was like, he's calling us to do this, he's calling us to do that. Who's got time to do any of this stuff? But really, he's saying the same thing over and over again in very different ways. What he's saying is cultivate that which you have been given. Cultivate it and live it out for the life of the world. That is the short story of it. And part of that is you have to, he he talks about the mind an awful lot. And that's something that we as Christians, unfortunately, get accused of uh, either falling in the ditch on either side. As Presbyterians, we get accused of being eggheads who only care about theology and intellect and don't really apply it in life. And then, and then as far as the anti-theists of the world, of which I was numbered among them, the accusations that Christians, you don't think about much of anything at all. And you're guilty of not thinking biblically. You're guilty of not being able to apply this in varying circumstances in the world. And so what we want to do is be people who cultivate our minds and our hearts and and the way in which we live for the life of the world so that God's glory would be manifest. So that the family could get bigger and bigger. Listen to what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, or the good doctor, says about this. He says, the first statement of the gospel is not an exhortation to action. Did you hear that? The first statement of the gospel is not an exhortation to action. So what he's saying there is, you're not being told to do anything when, when you first hear the gospel. And it has nothing to do with action or conduct and behavior. Before humanity is called upon to do anything, we must have received something. Before God calls upon a person to put anything into practice, he has made it possible for the person to put it into practice. It is because of his great love... That we are not overcome. It is because of his great love that we can actually live out and do what he's asking us to do. And that's what Peter sets up here. Um, If you notice, he says it's because of the the divine and great and precious promises of God that we are able to live and be partakers of the divine nature. You have access to all of the spiritual blessings. Everything you need to do this is given to you. That's how good our Father is. And we in humility should recognize that it is arrogant to think. Now, follow me for a second. It is arrogant of us to think that if it required Jesus to die, rise from the grave, ascend into heaven, come back and make it all new, And by the way, this thing called the Holy Spirit, which is part of the Trinity that's also God to indwell you, to empower you. Oh, and by the way, this 1,000-page, multi-columned book on onion skin paper. I don't don't know why that was needed to be a thing, but apparently it is. Uh, But this 1,000-page book, multi-columns, that you would need all of that to do what he's asking you to do. How arrogant is it for us to go, I'm not going to use any of that. I'm going to try to do this on my own. I'm going to try to, to give birth to eternity in the hearts and lives of men and women just on my own. When you say it like that, Cameron, it's kind of harsh, isn't it? It is arrogant of us, and we need to recognize, and Peter's calling us to humility. And we, we, we are guilty, aren't we? of prayerlessness and, and powerlessness because we have relegated the Holy Spirit to something way far away or something we don't want to get near because Lord knows you could wind up in China living in a yurt. Because that's, that's where God would have to you. You're that awesome. Right? And so uh, that just isn't true. You might wind up in China in a yurt after all, but that's only because he calls you, empowers you, opens the doors, makes a way, and gives you everything you need. But in the meantime, let's just try loving our neighbors right here. And so, as we turn to the text, I want to read verses 1. This is chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. This is the call to make every effort to make your calling and election sure. If you would, hear the word of the Lord this morning. For this very they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from the former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be, you will be richly provided for, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let's make sure we're following the grammar of the text here. He says, for this reason, so it would behoove us, I'm not going to re-preach Robbie's sermon, I just want to back up and read a little bit of what what he was saying. He's saying, uh, beginning in verse 3, it is God's divine power that has been granted to us so that all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you uh, called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us the precious and very great promises so that through them you may be, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So what he's saying? is saying, for this reason, the fact that you have been delivered from your, your, the corrupt nature. Now let me pause right there for a second and make sure you didn't just hear me say something about perfectionism. While we have been delivered, this is, if you think, Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8, while we've been delivered from the slavery of sin, it does not mean that we have yet overcome or come fully out of the struggle with sin. Do you understand? What that means is this, is that you no longer are a slave, which means you have everything you need to deal with the temptations that befall you. It is not a foregone conclusion that you will be destroyed or that you will be taken over or given over to your passions and lusts. Now, why do you think Peter is trying to make sure that we hear that? Well, what's the first excuse that most everybody on the planet makes for anything they've ever done wrong, beginning with the smallest of children all the way to the oldest? What? I couldn't help it. I just couldn't help it. Or my favorite, I don't know. I don't know why I did it. Which is actually saying I couldn't help it, right? You understand that, right? When you say, I don't know, what are you also confessing? That it was happening at some sort of sub-operative level that you didn't have control over, right? So what Peter is doing is he's cutting us off at the pass. He's saying, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say when I give you this list of things that I'm calling you to be and do, which is utterly impossible for you to do apart from the great and very great promises of the Lord our God, apart from you being delivered from your corrupt nature, it is utterly impossible. You're right, but something else has already happened. That's not you anymore. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but what it does mean is that we have every tool necessary to fight the good fight and to glorify God in this world for the life of the world. So what we cannot do is say, Lord, you didn't give me what I needed. Now, who else kind of had that confession when he got caught doing something? Anybody know? It's a guy named Adam. Right? You remember. He got all twisted around the axle and ate some fruit from the knowledge of good and evil before it was time for him to know all that stuff. But he wanted to do it in his own strength so he could take the shortcut and become God without doing all that work pre-fall, by the way. wasn't even when it was hard. He didn't <laughs> even want to do it when it was easy. That sounds like us, doesn't it? So God shows up. What does Adam do? Boldly strides up and says, hey, listen, God, this ain't my fault. No, what does he do? It's her fault actually says, no, it's your fault. You gave her to me. You made her. Not me. That's us. And so Peter's reminding us of, that's no longer you in the first Adam. You are now in the second Adam. You are now in Christ. You are in union with Christ, and all excuses for your behavior are gone. You do what you do because it's what you wanted to do. You do what you do because it's what you've cultivated. You have reaped this, and now you will sow. And what he's trying to say to us is, you have what you need to do this. I'm not, he's not placing a yoke upon us that will destroy us. Now, the list that he gives, he says, as he, as he says, he says, for this reason, and, and this is to make every effort. How many of you are out right there? Like, I don't need to, uh, we could close, do communion and go home. Make every effort? What's that mean? How's that supposed to happen in, in the world that we've created with, with all of our busyness and all of the things that we do? I don't have time to make every effort. Right? And then our confession. Well, it's funny. We do have plenty of time, actually. It's just what we've prioritized it for. Yes, we're all fascinating people. It's like, I don't have time for all this stuff. And yet, and yet we seem to find time for the things that we really care about, right? It's actually an exposing of what it is that we actually love, what is most important to us. And when we say, I don't have time for the means of grace, what we're saying is, I don't really love those things. And I really don't love God. And more importantly, what you're saying to your neighbors, I don't love you. I love me some me. So when he says make every effort, he's not saying quit your job. He's not saying uh, give up the things that you love. What he's saying is recognize that there is no sacred secular distinction and that everything you do can actually is moving either toward this or away from this. So wouldn't it be wiser instead of you feeling like you're being drawn about for reasons you don't understand, for you to knowingly, consciously make every effort to grow in the gospel. And again, I don't want you to hear me say, therefore you must read your Bible three, four hours a day. I don't even think that's productive for most people. I really don't. And, it, and, it, and, and you might be better off in, in reading one verse and just sitting there for, with it for a while or, or carrying it around on a little note card or something and meditating on it and letting it get into your soul, talking to others about it, engaging in community, making sure that you you pray uh, both in season and out. That means your popcorn prayer in the car, like mine, every time I get in the car now, Lord, help me glorify you as I'm about to get on 285. Uh, Which is probably, I probably should just get an Uber. (laughs) That's That's probably the solution to glorifying God on 285 as I've been traveling a good bit this week. And so, and so, uh, So it's important that we recognize that that he's not saying we have to give everything up and only become like shut off hermits. It's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to recognize that all of life is spiritual and nothing is neutral. And how you're leveraging those things, how you're seeing them, how you're hearing is affecting you one way or the other. It's wiser to cultivate in a way that, that heightens your senses. He says make every effort to supplement now, this, this term in the Greek is actually a term that was used in theaters. So when someone was a benefactor, they would supplement things. So they would add to in great generosity and grace. And so what he's saying is, you've been given all this stuff already by a great benefactor. Now you add to it. You, you build it up. You cultivate it generously. And he gives a list. And these lists were not uncommon in Greek culture. Lists of virtues and things of this nature. There's a couple of ways we could read this list. We could read it as a distinct chain. that You've you got to start with faith and then move to virtue. You can't, you can't skip down to love until you've done the others first. That's not what Peter intends here. It's not intended to be linear. What he's saying is, and oftentimes we miss this, somebody help me out. Is it the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit? Fruit, singular as a whole. You can thank Tim Keller for that insight. And so, uh, and so it's not that they are taken apart and, and they're individual. It's how they work all together. So this list is intended to be part of a whole, a holistic view of our character and how we actually evidence and, and, and reveal Christ. Because Christ is all of these things at all times. And he dwells in you, you understand? And he's interceding for you. And so what he's saying to us is these things need to be cultivated in whole. You can't tear them apart. Now, you will find yourself at times uh, flagging in some more than others, right? It's just true. Uh, Probably the one we flag in the most is just love. Or brotherly affection, those seem, maybe that's why he put them at the end of it, because he knew he didn't want to discourage us right out of the gate. But it's important that we have an understanding of how each of these things is different. So in your bulletin, you have a chart that has each of them hopefully defined real basically. Um, and I want to go through that just, just fairly quickly, and it's something that you really you need to meditate on these things. You need to take this with you. For those of you who are in small groups, you'll have a chance to discuss it. For those who aren't, I would encourage you, meditate on what each of these mean and, and how, it is, how it looks in and through your life. But the first is faith, and Josh did a great job of defining it. But it's, what it is, it's a sure hope in the promises of God. Too often, I think, that we think faith is this white-knuckling, I'm not real sure, but I'm going to close my eyes and hope it goes okay. No, because we know what Christ has done on our behalf and what has been given to us because of uh, verses 3 and 4, we have a firm foundation. The second is virtue. And this, this could be defined a lot of different ways, but here it's Christ-like thinking and character displayed in both private and public. If your virtues are only you clean up good, you show good, because grandma told you if you didn't, if that's all it is, then is it re- do you really possess that as a virtue? Is that part of your character? The answer is no. And so the, the, the striving, the cultivating ought to be that my, who I am in private ought to be who I am in public. There should be continuity. Knowledge is just the practical understanding of the scriptures and the work of Christ. He talks a lot about knowledge in this letter and how that combats false teaching. We should know Christ. We should know each of the things that we've talked about previously in the gospel. We should know what he has done for us. Self-control, he talked about this in, in the first letter. This is the mastery of our passions according to wisdom. If, if a lot of us stand, we, we fall here. We don't have control of our passions. We don't have control of our tempers. We don't have control of our mouths. We don't have control of our thoughts. We don't have control of our eating. We don't have control of hardly anything if we're not careful. And so this this is to actually master our passions according to wisdom. And then steadfastness is just firmly founded in the gospel and its practical outworkings. This means that you, you are consistent. Isn't that a critical thing to be? How many of you really enjoy dealing with inconsistent people? You're like, it's so awesome. It's like you're dealing with somebody new every day, but the same person. Godliness is just the reflection of God's attributes in and through our lives. Again, let me remind you, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is a great place to go to see God's confession of himself, his attributes clearly and beautifully stated. We should possess those. And display them. And then brotherly affection is a selfless care and concern for the saints, and love is selfless care and concern for those who are not yet saints. It is that we would love the world. Not the things of the world, not that we would get caught up in the things of the world, but and not that we would be taken out of the world, but as Christ prayed in John 17, that that God would leave us in the world to do the good work that He's given to us and protect us. And so if, if we are cultivating these things, then we will grow in Christ, guaranteed. And if we are cultivating these things, it will help serve as a protection against our own temptations. It will not make you perfect because as Peter has so beautifully displayed through his life, the struggle is real. And too often I think that we think struggle equals sin. No, that's not true. It's how we struggle. It's which way we run when we fail. Which way should you run? Away from God because he's going he's to hurt you until you get it squared away, right? Which way should you run? Toward God because Christ has made the way for you to come and receive everything that you need in a time of trouble, both mercy, which is forgiveness, and the reminder that you are not guilty, that you you don't have to walk in shame, and grace, which is the power to walk upright, resurrected in the power of Jesus Christ. So what Peter says here is that these things help to bolster us, And it keeps us from acting as if we aren't saved. Notice the language that he uses, that those who don't possess these things, those who aren't growing in these things, it's as if they are nearsighted and blind. They are unable to see the goodness of God in this world. They are unable to see the goodness of God in themselves. They're unable to see the goodness of God in all the things around them. And Peter's desire is that we wouldn't walk in darkness again, that we wouldn't wouldn't return again to the things that are killing us. It takes humility to say those kind of things to us and love us that way. And notice what he says, that the result of cultivating these things is that you will receive the victor's welcome in heaven. You will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of the number of people you've seen saved. Because think about this. How hard, it, think about it. Isn't it hard enough to try to do this stuff in your own life? Right? Can we confess that? Anybody here like, man, I got something riding high on this. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, think about trying to get this to occur in someone else's life. For those of you who are married, for those of you who are parents, for those of you who have siblings, for those of you who are born, I just want to make sure I've got everybody, <laughs> miss anybody. Right. We understand that it's hard enough trying to do it in ourselves. How cruel would God be if he said, I'm going to judge you based on the result you can gain in someone else's life. Oh, and by the way, they're as badly fallen as you are. Praise God that the victor's welcome is for what we cultivate within the strength that he has supplied to us. Praise God that we get the victor's welcome because Christ's work is finished. Praise God that we get the victor's welcome in growing in Christ's likeness, which means we grow in joy and peace. Praise God he's so gracious to us. So my question is, what are some of the efforts that you've made in the past? that have helped you to grow in your Christian character. See, I hear this, I hear this a lot of times. I'll hear people say um, they either did a particular study uh, or they, the, the church had a particular program that meant a lot to them or they went on a mission trip, right? So they, they usually point to this, transfiguration type moment. You remember the transfiguration when Peter, when he sees all that glory and he knows what's in the valley, he's like, listen, I'm gonna make a tent. For me, and I, listen, I, I love y'all too. Y'all can stay up here. I, I'm making tents for everybody and let's just not leave. Y'all remember that? And Christ said, no. All this glory is not intended to be kept up here. It must descend down into the valley. If you remember how the story goes in Mark in particular, they go down and find a young man possessed with a demon who is epileptic and throwing himself in the fire and the grieved father as the Pharisees and the disciples are fighting, right? I'm not sure why somebody didn't think, let's restrain the kid. But instead, they're fighting over who has power, spiritual power. The Pharisees are hitting them with the boo boo argument because they've failed. And the disciples are firing back saying, you ain't done much. And Jesus kind of calmly walks up and goes to the place that mattered the most. Where'd he go? To the side of the father. And the father said, I want to believe, but you've got to help my unbelief. And he redeems the child from that demon. And the disciples are like, hey, how'd you do that? He says, this comes by prayer and fasting work, it's cultivating it's, it's the cultivating of character it's the cultivating of, of us as uh, ambassadors of reconciliation so what were some of the efforts in the past that have helped you to grow and, and in answering that question I want you to be careful that you also rightly recognize that some of those mountaintop experiences while they're great and the Lord uses them and they're powerful, don't get me wrong you can't spend all your time pining for those Why? Because the Lord is faithful and good in the valleys. The Lord is faithful and good in the mundane. He is the Lord of every second that passes the clock. And so, what are your efforts? What efforts are you currently making to cultivate your Christian character specifically? Only you can answer that question. And only you can look at, at, at how you're looking at your schedule. Is there some way that you're 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 not prioritizing rightly. Is there some way in which you, you, are you running from something? Do you have a wrong view of what it ought to look like? Maybe you have an overinflated and arrogant view that you can only be helped with seminary levels type stuff, and you don't have time for that. As If the simplest reading at times, I've done this, just grab a verse on the go and it stays with you. There's lots of different, I mean, that's one of the great things about technology is you've got lots of different ways you can get this in. Lots of different ways that you can set this up. Let me turn back to the text as Peter calls us to remember and never forget the gospel of Christ. This is 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able any time to recall these things. Uh, for those of you who remember Dr. Sam Larson, he passed away this week. He went to be with the Lord. And one of the things that uh, I am very struck by is, is, is how, and it, for those of you who didn't know Sam, you can go on our website uh, in the resources section, find a sermon, any sermon he preached. You're going to have to buckle up now. You're going to put your chin strap on. He was a seminary professor, but he so loved the gospel that it felt like Genesis to Revelation every time he preached. And I mean that in a very good way. I, I, I would encourage you, because he is part of the history of this church. He served this church during a very important season where Mike, who had originally planted the church, had stepped away. Uh, and, and they didn't yet have who would follow Mike, which turns out was me. And so Sam, three out of four Sundays, was here preaching the gospel. And you, none of us could say that wasn't his passion. For us to know the gospel, and so, so, in the same vein, uh, the way in which Sam passed, he, he passed his books on to me when they moved, and it was interesting. I had, uh, uh, wasn't thinking about it, but I opened this book that I started reading in the morning, and it was it's a from the library of Doctor Sam Larson, and I opened my phone, and he had passed. And it was a sweet moment because it it reminded me of what he was about and what he would have wanted and how he would want his legacy to go on in and through the people of God. Not that we would even remember his name, but that we would remember the gospel, right? And Peter knows he is close. Death is at hand. In fact, he will die actually within probably the same year that this letter comes out. He will lose his life. And he wanted them desperately. Make sure you remember the gospel. Above all things, remember the gospel. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are to your Abba Father. And so he desperately wants to make this happen. Now here's what's interesting is we are part of this lineage in going through these letters, aren't we? That the Holy Spirit ensured that the church would have Evidence of its one firm and true foundation. That these letters would not be lost. It's it's amazing when you think about the history of these things. And how they came down to us and all that was lost. And that the Lord has ensured that we would have these letters to encourage us to be elect exiles remembering the gospel. So Tom Schreiner says... Reminders arouse and provoke believers, prompting them to prize the gospel afresh. Peter hoped that his words would, this is strong language, it kind of startled me when I read it, but I think it's right. That his words would stab the believers awake so that they would reject what the opponents taught. Believers know the gospel, and yet they must, in a sense, relearn it every day. Peter says that, he says, listen, I know you know it. I know you possess it, but it is critical, absolutely critical that you not forget and that you keep coming back to it because that's how glorious and deep it is. You can't exhaust it. So don't, in arrogance, think you ever possess it in such a way that you don't need to relearn it afresh. So what helps you remember the gospel on a regular basis? What, what helps... You most come back again to the firm foundation and, and, and remember God's mercy and grace afresh. And even more important, how are you helping your friends and family remember and not forget the gospel of Christ? This isn't someone else's job. It's yours. 2 Peter 1, 5-15 teaches us that we are called to make every effort to grow in Christian character and confirm our calling and election. And we are to remain firm on the foundation of the gospel of Christ by regularly remembering. It's one of the reasons we talk about remembering a lot around here because the Bible talks about it a lot, but that's the beauty of the Lord's Day Sabbath is that it, it, it calls for us to remember. Again, it's one of mine and Susan's practices that I would encourage you to do. And do this with your family, because it trains your vision and ears, is to take time at some point this day and and reflect on the previous week and ask the question, where has God been good? We're we're so quickly entitled, we we are so quick to see where all the deficits are, right? We just do. We're, we're, We're critics by nature. Um, whether it's music or sports or movies or books or preaching or church or whatever it may be, we criticize first, almost always. There needs to be a ceasefire in that somewhere within the architecture of your week. The Sabbath is a beautiful place for that. It's also a great way to help teach your children. If you're worried about your children being entitled, this is a great way to train them up to see the goodness of the Lord. And that what they have and possess in him is greater than anything the world could offer them. It's interesting, I've been reading, and the movie just came out, I read the book Beautiful Boy by David Sheff. Um, If you're not familiar with it, it's the story of his son who gets hooked on methamphetamine. The son, Nick, wrote a book called Tweak, and I'm in the middle of that, and it's rough. I mean, but I come from an addiction background, so it's nothing that I'm not familiar with. But it's interesting how Nick describes why it is that he became an addict. He says, and it's, and it's fascinating, he says, I became an addict because I did not feel whole. And the first time I took methamphetamine, it's the first time I ever felt whole. And I've been chasing it ever since. But the problem is that methamphetamine doesn't make me whole. It made me feel whole, but all it has done is destroy me piece by piece. And it will, it will not be satisfied until there's nothing left. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So if we are concerned with what our children and their wholeness, and our own, by the way, then a great place to start is to remember the gospel. A great place to start is to pause at some point in our week, Sabbath being a great place to do it, and remember how God has been good, and that we are not entitled. We're elect because God loved first. We've not been left without the resources that we need. All of his precious promises are ours. We have the fullness of the yes and the amen in Christ. So as we close out this sermon and transition into communion, let me read uh, this quote from Dick Lucas and Christopher Green. He says, Peter is convinced that true Christian knowledge is not irrelevant book learning, but that it changes the Christian and then impacts the world. Did you hear that? This is not irrelevant book learning. It's something that ought to change us in such a way that the world around us is deeply impacted by. it. So as we transition to communion, the, the great thing about communion, if you remember what Jesus said, what did he say? Why did he say do this? In remembrance of me. And, and if Jesus thought we needed to remember often, what might that tell you about our ability to forget? It's high. And uh, he wanted to make sure that we would not allow the world to tell us we are something and someone other than what God has declared over us in him, right? So the beauty of us getting to come to this table this morning, after we've heard the, the imperative, the call to cultivate our Christian character, is that you know you'll be nourished to do that in and through this broken bread and this overflowing cup right and so as you uh, have opportunity this morning we're going to meditate on both both parts both elements of the table and so the first uh, that he had the elders can go ahead and come forward is that he he took bread and you remember they were they were sitting around having a meal together and he took something that he knew that they would have a regular relationship with like we do bread Um, And so he wanted them to, to see that it's in the simplicity of the everyday that the gospel is so profound and that we shouldn't forget that he is infused in and participates in everything, every aspect of our lives. And so he took bread and he says, this, this is my body and it is broken for you. And in saying that to them, what he was communicating is that the fullness of their shame and guilt, fullness. That's crucial because too many of us don't believe uh, that, that he really did the fullness. Right? We, we, we believe he did a lot of really good. It was, a lot of good was done, but there's, you know, you don't know me. I'm kind of unique. My sin's unique. It's not like anybody else's. Again, that's arrogant for you to think that, by the way. There's nothing new east of Eden. There just isn't. We're not, we're, we're, we're not even the technology, all the things that we have at our disposal, we're not really doing anything very new with it. We're just doing the same old stuff in a different era. And so what he's saying is your sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with. Your shame and guilt in, in its totality is dealt with on the cross. And God's wrath is completely and utterly satisfied. You never, you never have to fear running from him again. In fact, because of this broken body, you run to him, not from him. So as you receive the bread this morning, if you would meditate on The gift that it is that you get to run to him, not from him. Would you meditate on how glorious it is that your shame and guilt, even if you continue to wrestle with it, it has been defeated. You get to wrestle as a victor. You get to wrestle as one who has truly overcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the broken bread. More importantly, what it signifies and seals, which is the broken body of Christ. Thank you that in the broken body of Christ, we have a firm foundation on which we can be transformed into the image of Christ and cultivate our Christian character so that we could love the world better than we do without it. God, would you nourish us with this bread? Would you help us remember how good you have been to us? In Christ's name, amen.